Please stand for the reading of Exodus 3. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father and law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take off your sandals. Take your sandals off your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am God. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering. I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. And I also have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that, will, that, you, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, but I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say, to, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent you to has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to remember through out all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has done and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you out of the affliction of Egypt, the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. You and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord and God 
The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and your daughters and on your daughters and you shall plunder the Egyptians. You may be seated. Thanks, Chandler. Appreciate you reading that very long passage. As we, as we get into these long passages, uh, it's a wee bit long to stand, uh, but I think it's good to hear the whole thing and just see the, the full picture of what's going on here. Well, welcome again to, to Midlands. My name is Matt. I'm one of the elders here, one of the pastors, and uh, we're going to be looking at Exodus 3 together. But I want to invite you to join me in prayer before we get started. God, thank you for your word. And thank you for every word of it. Uh, we uh, are humble before you, and as we think of a God who is immortal, uh, who's immortal, <laughs> invisible, um, the only wise God, Lord, we're humbled to speak of you, we're humbled to stand before you, and we're humbled to, to think of you. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to think of you rightly, help us to focus our hearts on you now. Clear our minds of distractions, unburden our hearts of things that would weigh us down right now. And Lord, give us a clear sight of you as we gaze upon you and your word. We ask these things in Christ's name and it's for his glory. Amen. It's been said that there are two great days in a person's life. The day you are born and the day you discover why. I like that. Uh, I'm told William Barclay was the first guy to say it. I've, I've heard it attributed to about six different people. Um, so feel free to just say that this guy, Matt Hayes, said it, because I, I think it sounds cool. I like the, I like the ring of it. Um, whoever came up with that was spot on, though. And I think there's, there's something in that that resonates with us all. We all desire to know why we're here, right? We want to know what it is God has put us on earth to do. And when we turn to the pages of Scripture with that question in mind, often what we find is that the Bible will steer us toward not so much focusing on what we were created to do, but on who created us. That The uh, attention is focused in a different direction. John Calvin put it this way. He said, nearly all the wisdom we possess consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and knowledge of ourselves. And he went on to say, man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon God's face and then descends from contemplating him to scrutinize himself. It seems that if we are to make sense of us and our lives, we have to first come to know our maker. We have to understand who has put us here and who he is and then move on to those lesser things of why we're here and what we are to be doing. And I think that's what we see here in Exodus 3, ultimately. 
In that story that Chandler just read to us, God calls out to Moses. He makes himself known. He makes his plans for Moses and Israel known to him. And it's tempting to focus on Moses and the details that are revealed to him. I mean, in one sense, this is the moment where Moses discovers why he was born. This is the moment where Moses realizes this is what God put him on earth to do. And it's tempting to want to dig down into that and focus on on that part of the passage and think, how can we do the same, right? Here's where Moses figures it out. Now, how do I figure it out? What can I learn from Moses and sort of get on my own path of self-discovery here? But I don't think that's primarily what this passage is about. There's some of that there and there are things we can learn But we need to read this first and foremost as a revelation of God himself. You know, if you have been uh, with us in the Exodus series so far, these first couple chapters of Exodus, in one sense, God has has been a bit distant. Uh, He's been kind of lurking in the background, and we've tried to trace his hand a bit and why he would allow Israel to be subjected to slavery. We tried to to figure out last week what he was doing and how he was preparing Moses for his future leadership. But here in Exodus 3, there's this definitive introduction of God where he goes from seemingly absent in the story to undeniably present. He takes center stage. He is the focus of what is happening here. And in one sense, he is going to be the focus of all that follows from this moment, not only in the book of Exodus, but really in the whole Bible. And so tempting as it may be, I think it would be wrong for us to shift the spotlight away from God this morning and and turn it toward ourselves or even to Moses and and think about those questions of why are we here and what are we doing? So what I want to do as we're looking at this passage is I want to just key in on five truths we see about the person of God, five ways he reveals himself here in this passage. And and what I'm praying is that this would be one of those days where we, uh, in this room and in this community here, get a fresh look at the face of God. I think Calvin was absolutely right. We, We get a better understanding of ourselves and what we're here to do after we first gaze upon the face of God and then come down from that to look upon ourselves. And so I'm praying this morning that we would get a fresh glimpse of the face of God today. And I want to do that by, again, pointing out these five basic truths about the person of God that we see here in this passage. And here's the first one. Give me five very simple headings to follow today. The first one is that God is glorious. God is glorious. The, the story starts there. Moses is keeping his father-in-law's flock uh, we, we met him last week as Ruel. Uh, his, his name here is Jethro. Same, same guy, just goes by two different names. And he's in this place called Horeb. Uh, that may be unfamiliar to you. You probably know it uh, by its more common name that we find later in the scripture of Sinai. This is the Mount Sinai uh, on which God will give Moses the law, the Ten Commandments, uh, here in the book of Exodus. And of course, Moses is there with the flock. Uh, He's on this mountain, and all of a sudden he sees this image. It's like nothing he's ever seen before. It's a bush that is burning, but the text says it was not consumed. And we can imagine this. We've all seen a fire before. You uh, You can hear the burning and the crackling. You can smell the smoke. You can see the flames can imagine Moses looking about his flock, his eyes on the horizon. He's making sure there are no predators, nothing to endanger his flock here. And all of a sudden he sees this. He sees the flames burning bright. 
As he gets closer, he can feel the heat. But this fire is like nothing he's ever seen before. It, it, it's almost as if it p- possesses a kind of self-control. It's, it's burning, but it's not being consumed. Then he hears the voice of God from the bush, and, and what seems to be happening becomes more clear. This, this blaze before him is a visible manifestation of an invisible God. And that's something you actually see throughout the Old Testament. Fire is often used to symbolize God's presence. Think about uh, back in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden. There's this flaming sword put at the gate. It's like a divine barrier. You're not coming back unless God lets you in or unless God comes out for you, as it were. Or think about in Genesis 15 when God cut the covenant with Abram. He made that promise to him that we're seeing play out in this book, as we talked about a few weeks ago. Your descendants are going to be like the stars of the sky. even told him that they would be slaves for 400 years, and he would bring them out of that land. We're seeing that promise begin to take place. But on that day, he placed those animals on two different sides, and then a flaming torch passed between them, symbolizing that God himself was ratifying that covenant. Of course, here we have a burning bush later in Exodus when they leave Egypt. On that night, they plunder the Egyptians. It'll be a pillar of fire that leads them out. Eventually, they'll get back to this mountain. The whole thing will be engulfed in flames and smoke, the text tells us, as God meets Moses on the mountain and gives his people the law. So fire is this picture that God has chosen to help us get a sense of who he is. And I think it's helpful to to think of that image as we try to think of our God. Fire is, it's intense. It's it's fascinating. It's hard to take your eyes off of fire. You just kind of want to get close to it. You kind of want to experience. There's something sort of mesmerizing about a fire. It's burning hot. And it can be helpful, right? But it's not to be trifled with. We all know how dangerous fire can be if it breaks out. Fire, we might say, to borrow a line from C.S. Lewis, is good, but it is not tame. And so God chooses this image to apply to himself. In Hebrews 12, the author says, Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. That's how he has chosen to reveal himself. He is glorious like none other. So that's the first truth we see here. Just as we're getting into the story, God is introducing himself in the book of Exodus. And point number one is, I'm like nothing you've ever seen before. Can't take your eyes off of him. Good, but not tame. Not to be trifled with. The second point I want to emphasize is that God is holy. So God speaks to Moses from the bush. First thing he tells him is, take your sandals off. You're on holy ground. This dusty mountain is holy ground. It's the first time in the Bible the word holy uh, appears. And it's used of this place that God has made holy by gracing with his presence. And when we think about holiness in the scripture, I think there are at least two things we've always got to hold in mind. One is to say that God is holy is to say that he is righteous, that he is good, he is perfect, he is morally and ethically pure. Whatever he does is right and good and holy. The other piece of it is to say that God is holy is to say he is set apart. He is distinct. Again, he is unlike anything we know. 
So God is revealing himself to Moses. This place where you are standing is holy because I'm here. You need to take off your shoes and recognize that. It's a little act of reverence. And then he identifies himself with the covenant of Moses' forefathers. Moses, I'm the God of your father. Imagine how that would fall on the ears of a man who's been running from his family for 40 years, right? I'm the God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, echoes of the book of Genesis here. And yet, rather than being excited, what does Moses do? He hides his face. He's afraid to come near. And this is puzzling. You got to stop and think about what's happening here. This is what the people were praying for, right? They've been crying out to God, come and save us, come and help us. Here is God announcing, I have come. Why is Moses not celebrating? It's because he's in the presence of God. The thing we have to recognize this morning is if you don't understand why Moses hid his face in this moment, it's quite possible you don't understand the God he had encountered in this moment. You don't understand whom he is talking to. See, when people meet God in the Bible, they're not comfortable. They're not at ease. They fall on their face. They are overcome by his greatness, by his majesty. They're undone by the sense of their own unworthiness. You think of Isaiah. He sees the Lord high and lifted up. What does he say? Woe is me. I have no business being here. And as we imagine this moment of Moses encountering this God who is glorious and holy, if this seems foreign to you and foreign to your own experience with God, I think you have to ask yourself a hard question this morning. Why is that so? Because if you're not overwhelmed by the glory of the God you worship, it may be that you're not worshiping the God of the Bible. You may have twisted him into someone you're more comfortable with, right? I mean, we have to ask ourselves hard questions sometimes. If we've never feared the Lord, and that command is given all throughout Scripture, and when all these good and holy people who meet him throughout Scripture keep shrinking in fear, and we just waltz up to him with utter comfort, we have to ask ourselves, do I perhaps think too little of God? Have I domesticated him in some way? Have I tamed him in my own mind? Now, we can't actually tame him, but we can fool ourselves to thinking he is smaller than he is, thinking he's more like us than he is, to kind of recasting him in our own image, as it were. To do I maybe think too little of this God? Or do I maybe think too much of myself? Sure, I'd cower if I were Moses. If I were Moses and done what Moses had done, I'd be afraid. But me, I'm feeling pretty good. I think I'm okay before him. And yet time and time again, when people meet God in the scriptures, they fall on their face. It's so easy to be entitled. And, and particularly if you've kind of grown up in a, in a culture or a home or a, a family life where uh, the reality of God has been ever present, that's a huge blessing, by the way. That's, that's nothing to... to um, to be upset about or frustrated with. That's the reality I pray my children grow up with, right? My, my wife and I endeavor to give them that with every ounce of energy we have. And yet I know that familiarity can breed this sense of content. It can breed this, this sense of comfort and contentment that is foreign to these kind of encounters in the Scripture. 
So we should strive to let God be all he truly is. And here's why. Because when we do, his actions toward his people are all the more remarkable. The point is not God is glorious, God is holy, we should fear him and stay afraid. The point is God is glorious, God is holy. So let's be in awe at what happens next here. The third truth we see here about God is that he is, he is gracious. He's gracious. In verse 7 in the text, God begins to speak to a, to a Moses who's scared to death, right? And this is kind of a repetition of the end of chapter 2. If you read verse 24 and 25 of chapter 2, it sounds a lot like that. I've seen the affliction of my people. I've heard their cry. Remember, they've been crying out to him. I know their suffering. And now I have come down to deliver them. And there's this really cool pattern here that he's come to deliver them out of Egypt and into this land flowing with milk and honey, this land of abundance and, and blessing. And that's how God's salvation works. He takes us out of danger. He brings us into blessing. That's how he still works in our life today. But I think the most significant word in that first little speech by God there and maybe verses 7 through 10 is the shortest word in the English there. One of the shortest, I guess, is the word my. God says, I have come down to my people. Imagine how significant that word would have landed on your ears if you're one of those people. You've been crying out for decades. Have you forgotten us? Have you given up on us? Have you moved on to others? We feel forsaken and forgotten. And God says, I have not forgotten my people they belong to me, as the author of Hebrews puts it later. He was not ashamed to be called their God. And God's willingness to stoop down and identify himself with a people is some of the greatest news we find in all of the Bible. It reminds us of the, the blessing we experience when someone else enters into our pain and they just didn't have to. And think about a, a time in my own life when I felt this in a really vivid way. It was my junior year of college, and um, I got one of those phone calls that you really dread uh, getting if you're a college student and you live a couple hours from your family. Uh, I think it was my dad called me in the middle of the night. I uh, said, your grandma had a, uh, we, we thought it was a stroke at the time. She collapsed. They rushed her to the hospital. It's not looking good, you know. So I got one of those calls. I, it's the middle of the night. I'm about two hours away. I just started kind of getting my stuff together. And then it, it dawned on me, I should, I should call and let Shy know. So Shy and I dated all through college. We've been dating two, two and a half years when this happened. Uh, we're not yet engaged like Josh and Grace. Congratulations, by the way. That was news to me in the prayer. I hope it wasn't news to you guys. Um, uh, it's okay that you didn't ask me before you asked her, Josh. I just didn't know that you had done that this weekend. So, um, but congratulations to you guys. So Shy and I were dating. We weren't engaged yet. And... Um, but I, I and, and so like we had, the reason I mentioned that is because you know, we kind of knew each other's family, but we weren't like really integrated in each other's family yet. It was like that stage in the relationship. But I thought I'm going to leave in the middle of the night. I should tell her where I'm going. So I called her. Hey, sorry to wake you up. I just got this call from my dad. Um, my grandma's sick. She's going to the hospital. Uh, it's not looking good. I'm going to have to go home. And it kind of gave the little spiel. And then uh, I never forget what she said. She said, okay, I can be ready in a few minutes. And it, it just blew me away because I wasn't inviting her. <laughs> I, wasn't, I wasn't calling. <laughs> that sounded worse than I meant for it to. Um, 
I wasn't calling to ask her to come with me. I, I just was telling her what I was going through, and I just wanted her to know. But she was willing to, uh, to enter into that and to walk with me through that and to take on some of that burden. And it just meant the world to me in that moment. Now, now my wife would want me to tell you that that was just a faint uh, picture of what we see here. But it, it does remind me of, I think, some of what's going on here. When God says to Moses, these are my people, right? He's entering into their pain. He's taking their burden upon himself. He's saying, I'm going to bear this with you so that we can have a personal relationship. You are my people. So you put those first three truths together and you've really got a, a little picture of what we call the gospel, the central message of the Bible. God is so holy that we dare not approach him. He is too glorious and too unlike us for us to just waltz up to him. We cower in fear. But he's so gracious that he has come to us, right? If he's not holy, if he's not glorious, we have no business worshiping him. But if he's not gracious, we have no hope. And yet he has come to us. He comes to Moses, and he begins to kind of unveil his plan to Moses. Here are all the things I'm going to do. And if you were listening closely, he kind of says it two or three times in the passage there, and we're going to see it play out. But some of what begins to happen in this conversation is God begins to reveal this, this fourth truth that we're going to look at here. He begins to show Moses that he's going to be enough for him. So the, the fourth uh, truth about God we see here is that God is sufficient. God is sufficient. So beginning in verse 10, there's this kind of paradox uh, of how God works. He's glorious and he is holy. He is unlike us. He doesn't need us. He is self-sufficient. And yet he's going to use us. All right, so imagine how crazy this sounded to Moses. In verse 8, I have come down. And Moses is going, yeah, this sounds great. Here you come. In verse 10, I will send you. You're going to be the one who does this, Moses. That's too much for Moses. He says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? Now, that's a fair question, right? We've got we to gotta be fair to Moses here. I mean, we, we looked at this last week. He, he had ruined his credibility in Egypt. Uh, he had been a fugitive for some 40 years now. Surely he had no business leading his people or approaching the Pharaoh and demanding that all of these slaves are set free to go and worship their God in the wilderness. I mean, if anybody had a chance to do that, surely it wasn't Moses. He had squandered that opportunity, right? So he says, who am I? And God answers, not by really giving him an answer. He answers by shifting his focus altogether. And this is, this is significant. Some of you this morning may be asking that question before the Lord, even in these days. Who am I to do these things you seem to be putting before me? I'm so broken. I'm so messed up. I've made so many mistakes. I've turned from you so many times. I'm so unworthy. Who am I that you would use me? And listen to what Moses says in that moment, because it's, listen to what God says to Moses in that moment, because it's as if God says, forget about who you are. <laughs> Let me tell you who I am. And that's where he goes from there. Because he could have outlined Moses' qualifications at this point. 
I mean, last week we spent some time uh, trying to understand how God was preparing Moses for uh, the leadership he had uh, planned for him, for the good works he had prepared in advance for him to do. He could have pointed that out to Moses. He could have said, look, this is what I was doing in this season. This is what I was doing here. This is how I was preparing you. You're ready for this. You really can do it. He could have said, this is why you were born, Moses. This is what I made you to do. If he would have done that, I like how Philip Ryken puts this. He said, that would have led Moses to trust in his gifts rather than his God. If he would have looked upon his qualifications. Moses says, who am I? And it's as if God answers, well, you're, you're nobody. <laughs> That's not the point. You're not enough and you never will be. But I will be with you. That's his answer. Who am I that I should go before Pharaoh? And God says, who cares who you are? I will be with you. And that will be enough. And then he says, here's the proof. Here's how you're going to know that this is me leading you and these things are going to come to pass. You shall serve God on this mountain. Now, if you're attentive here, think about this for a second. He's saying, this is how you're going to know that I'm working through you. When this is over, you're going to be back on the mountain here. Right? So how's that for proof? It's not like this is how you're going to know. Let me show you something real quick. Now, that's actually going to come in the next chapter with the cool trick of the staff and the serpent and stuff. But in this moment, Moses says, who am I? And God says, well, I am with you. And this is how you're going to know I'm with you. Eventually, you're going to be back on this mountain. And when you get to this mountain next time, you're not going to be alone. And you're going to have a flock, but it's not going to be these livestock. It's going to be a nation of people that I've brought here to worship me and make me my own. And that promise from God to Moses has to be grasped by faith. The author of Hebrews put it this way, Moses endured as seeing him who is invisible. This is what God was calling Moses to do. Would you walk with me? Would you trust this promise? Would you come after these things even as you don't see them before you? Would you endure by faith as if you're seeing that which is invisible. And Moses discovered the sufficiency of God in the days ahead, the weeks ahead, as we're going to unpack in the next uh, few weeks of this series. He discovered the sufficiency of God through his own suffering, right? But God didn't answer everything right there. He said, I want you to walk by faith. So God shows himself to be sufficient, he has shown himself to be gracious, holy, and glorious. And then here's a fifth truth, and we're just going to kind of introduce this idea. Uh, Chandler, sorry I made you read all that stuff, and we're, I'm not going to get to all of it. But um, you did a great job on all those names, by the way. Um, but I just want to introduce this idea, and then this conversation continues well into chapter 4. And Moses' kind of initial question, who I am, is just sort of the beginning of him really doubting what God is telling him. So at first, it's, we're, at first you kind of feel like, okay, Moses, we understand it's hard for you to see what's going on. By the end of this, he's just going, I'm not doing this. And so that's where we'll go next week. But here's, here's the fifth truth about God we see in the passage. And it, it's wrapped up in that really strange answer he gives to Moses' question. But the, the truth is that God is eternal. Right? He's, he is eternal. So Moses asks, well, what should I tell them your name is? And if I go to the people and I tell them God, the God of my fathers has come and has taken us out, what if they ask, what is his name? What do I say? And it's kind of a puzzling question. I, I think in one sense it probably has a little something to do with the fact that they've been in Egypt for 400 years. 
and the people that Moses would go address, um, in addition to the fact that any of them that remember him know him to be the guy that murdered a guy and buried him in the sand a few decades ago. But in addition to that, it's been 40 or it's been uh, 400 years for their people to be in Egypt. They've lived their entire lives in this in this culture, this polytheistic Egyptian culture where there would have been uh, belief in multiple gods. Right. So you, you can't just show up and say God said to do this in a context like that. You've got to give some identification. Right. Uh, because the Egyptians had a whole cabinet full of gods in their minds. And, um, but I think the question is a little less about his literal name. It's, I think it's a bit more about his nature. Who are we really talking about here? What if they ask me that? So God gives him this answer, and it's basically puzzled us all ever since. Verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. Now, one sense, that doesn't even make sense. <laughs> it's, it's bad grammar. Uh, it's hard for us to make any sense as to what God is actually saying there. But I think that's part of the point is that just as God is making himself known to Moses and he's kind of coming front and center uh, on the stage of this story that's going to be the Exodus, there's a preservation of some mystery here that I don't think we should try to necessarily get a, away from, right? He, he really is unlike us, and, and we really can't fully comprehend him. And so there are going to be aspects to his nature, even down to identifying him by name, that we can't fully wrap our minds around. And that's okay. That, that's just the part of, uh, part of the reality of interacting with a truly divine being. But the other thing I think is important to see here is, when he says, I am, it's in the present tense. There's this notion of his eternal presence. I am the God who is, not the God who was, not the God who will be someday. I am who I am. I am eternally me. I am forever existing as I am. Nothing changes me. Nothing alters me. Nothing surprises me. I am who I am. I am eternally and forever present. Now that might be encouraging to a bunch of people who have felt like he was absent for all their lives. They've prayed and prayed and prayed, and I'm sure they've asked God, where are you? Where have you been? And God's answer is, I am. I am. I am eternally present. And so then he begins to unveil more details of the plan to come. And this is a part we won't really trace out, but he says, you're going to go to the elders. Uh, they're going to accept this and you're going to go to Pharaoh. He's not. You're going to do these signs and wonders. Eventually he's going to give in. And then you guys are going to leave. And on the way out, you're going to take a bunch of their stuff with you. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. And we're going to unpack all of that in the pages ahead as we continue to study Exodus. But at this point, that announcement just serves to kind of underscore the sovereign strength of I am. He is the one who's forever on the throne. He knows the future and he's able to bring it about. And in one sense, all these characteristics we've been talking about, the fact that God is glorious, the fact that God is holy, the fact that he is sufficient, the fact that he is eternal, they all kind of come together in that name. I am. And of course, you know that Jesus 
identified himself with the same name. Now, you guys remember in John 8, when he's having that argument with the Jewish leaders, and they're kind of uh, going back and forth on some things, and somebody brings up Abraham, and Abraham is our father, and, and Jesus just kind of ends the discussion with, before Abraham was, I am. It doesn't make a lot of grammatical sense to us this morning, but the people that day knew exactly what it meant. So they picked up stones ready to, to stone him. They realized this guy is claiming to be God because only God goes by that. That's what he is claiming to be. And of course, the early Christians recognized that's exactly who he is. Paul said to the Colossians, he is the image of the invisible God. In him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All the glory, all the holiness, all the grace, all the sufficiency was pleased to dwell in Jesus Christ. So as we read this this morning, part of what we have to acknowledge is that we don't actually need a burning bush to know who God is anymore. Think about that bush as you hear this verse from 2 Corinthians 4. Paul said, Jesus is the image of God. And you think about that blazing fire. He said, God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And we don't need a bush to show us these truths about God. We don't need a fire that's burning and not consumed. We can look upon the face of Christ as he's revealed to us in the scriptures. And so, friends, I, I, I just want to say to you again, if you want to know why you were born, if you want to know what you are here to do, the solution is not to look upon yourself. It's to gaze deeply into the face of Christ. Figure out who He is. Get to know Him. and He will make His plans clear. He will guide you every step of the way. But He will be the center of the story. Not any one of us. Some of you may be here this morning as a first-time guest, or maybe you've been to church plenty of times before and, and you're hearing this and, and you just say, quite frankly, that's not the God I've ever talked about. <laughs> My people have talked about God in totally different terms. And, and the way I've thought of God maybe is flawed and off in some ways. I just want to encourage you again, just as God came to Moses on that mountain, he can come to you right here in, in these moments make himself known to you through his word. You can cry out to him just like the Israelites did. When you do, he'll answer. He will come to you just like he came to them. So we're going to pray in a moment. And then those of us who are followers of Jesus, who are hoping in this good news that Christ has come and made a way for us to approach the throne of grace with confidence, uh, we're going to take communion, and if, if you're here as a guest and, and, and you're walking in faith in, in Jesus Christ today, we invite you to take communion with us. It's, it's going to be at the back of the room after the music starts. You, you're welcome to go back on your own and, and, uh, and dip the bread in the, in the juice and, and take communion on your own. Um, the, uh, the, the, the bread is, is uh, gluten-free, by the way. Uh, we, we like to just mention that every once in a while because I know people have to be aware of that kind of stuff. Um, but if you're with us this morning and you're not, um, 
you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. You think about this understanding of God and you think this is not the God of worship. Maybe I've kind of come up with my own idea of God. I've been bowing down to that one. Or maybe that idea of God I've been bowing down to looks a whole lot like myself. I just invite you to take this time to pray, to cry out to the God of the Bible. Cry out to the God of this world. Cry out to the God who has revealed himself to Moses in the story we read today. And, and, and trust that he will come to you as you place your faith in Jesus. So let me pray for us, and then we'll take communion together. Lord, thank you that you are a God who reveals yourself. We surely could never come to you on our own terms. We could never find you. We would never seek you. Our hearts are too, are too inwardly turned, Lord. We're too consumed with the things of this world. We're too focused on ourselves. Too overwhelmed by our own troubles, Lord. But God, in your grace and in your mercy, despite how far and distant you could be, you have chosen to come near to us. And we sit here this morning as those um, who can look upon this story through the lens of Jesus, knowing that you have come to us ultimately and finally through your Son. And so we thank you for him. We pray that we would think rightly about you, and that would shape how we think about ourselves. Lord, be with us in these moments. May we worship you in spirit and in truth. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.